Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. The arrival of the Mayflower in Plymouth in 1620 and the Pilgrim's Feast with Wampanoag Indians a year later are recalled each November when we celebrate Thanksgiving. But what actually happened at that three-day feast, and how did the narrative change over time? Today, I'll talk with Chris Newell, the author of If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving, a brand new book for children. With help from Wampanoag scholar Linda Coombs, Chris offers young readers a fuller understanding of this pivotal encounter in American history and shows the devastating toll that colonization took on Indian tribes along the eastern coast. Chris is an award-winning educator as well as a proud citizen of the Passamaquoddy tribe I'm delighted to welcome him and Scholastic Editor Katie Height to the podcast. Hi, Chris and Katie. Welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. So happy to be here. It's lovely to have you both. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners, Chris, and tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. My name's Chris Newell. I am a co-founder and the director of education for Agamount Educational Initiative. I'm a Passamaquoddy citizen born and raised in my community in Madokmigook, which is known as Indian Township, Maine, and uh, a longtime educator, singer, uh, you know, doing various different things. But a, a lot of what I do currently is focused on the world of education and incorporating Native perspectives in all areas of education, K-12 schools, museums, media, in a culturally competent way. Fantastic. And Katie, what about you? Hi, I'm Katie Height, and I am a senior editor at Scholastic, focusing on all things nonfiction for ages zero to 10. I am delighted that Chris has written this new book for children. It's called If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. Chris, tell us a little bit about it. This is a kind of a revamp of an older series of If You Lived or the, the If You series from the 1970s. And this was about the Thanksgiving. And when Katie approached me about this particular project, I really wanted to bring a, a lot of Wampanoag voice to it. And so this is essentially a question and answer form retelling of the landing of the Mayflower in 1620. And of course, the feast that came along in 1621, which a lot of Americans refer to as the first Thanksgiving, but also kind of zooming out a little bit to that point of history and looking at the before and the after, and then kind of finishing up with talking about how the Thanksgiving holiday that we have today in 2021 actually came to be. Let's start with the arrival in 1620 and talk about the before and the great dying, which does call to mind a little bit the global pandemic. I wanted to make sure that in the book that Wampanoag people were being centered within their own historical narrative. And that involves including the complexity of life before 1620. And there were several events that began all the way back in the 1500s. Fishing ships from various European countries had already began arriving in the region. 
And along with that, they did make contact. There was some trade encounters. There was actually some slave taking by some of these ships at times. And in the process, disease was also transmitted onto the continent. And in the year 1616, an event known as the Great Dying began up in what is now the state of Maine. And it basically flowed down the coast from 1616 to 1619, all the way through Wampanoag territory. And it would wipe out an estimated 80 to 90 percent of the coastal native populations in that area. So the, the Wampanoag were fearful when the pilgrims arrived or they called the pilgrims called themselves the saints. Is that right? Well, it, that's an interesting uh, um, you know, phenomenon that I, I kind of talk about in the book, because the 19th century has so much into shaping our uh, understanding of the narrative. So uh, back in 1620, they weren't calling themselves pilgrims necessarily, although William Bradford did describe the journey of the saints as a pilgrimage. There's more than just the, the 40 or so passengers that were coming from Holland with Bradford uh, that, that were the religious separatists that we're also familiar with. There were several others that were part of the crew of the ship, as well as folks that were coming here to basically create and, and find a way to, to make a living for themselves in, an, in what they considered a new world. That's right. So there were people on the ships who really weren't coming for religious freedom necessarily. Absolutely. Yeah. So William Bradford, in his accounting, would call the, the people we know as the religious separatists saints and would call the others strangers. And that was the, the two names that we uh, use in the book as well. Tell us about that first feast in Plymouth in 1621 and how it differs from popular mythology. That particular feast is tied to the American holiday, and it, it became, you know, almost in pop culture, a, a seminal moment of kind of a creation of a country, you know, and, and this uh, very beautiful feast of Native people and colonists getting together. But as much as we have kind of lionized and lauded the story, in history, it was so unremarkable to the English that they actually only wrote about a paragraph about it. So there isn't a whole lot of written information about the feast itself. Do we know anything about the foods that were eaten at that first gathering? I, I think we know what the Wampanoag or Native peoples ate in general. Yeah, there is some description of the food. Edward Winslow was one of the Mayflower passengers, one of the people on the plantation, uh, in a letter writing back to England, described the, the feast. Essentially, they had brought in their crops. They had a hard year. Through the first winter, half of them had passed away from exposure or hunger, and they did not have the proper seeds to grow for successful crops in the soil for the sandy soil of Mass uh, coastal Massachusetts. So when they did successfully, with the help of Wampanoag people, trade for seeds and uh, raise a successful crop. They, they wanted to celebrate it. So they would have grown crops that would have been native to the regions, corn, beans, and squash. And so that would have been definitely on the menu. There is also a description of Usamequin, who uh, is often referred to as Massasoit. That's actually his title, not uh, his name. Amasasoit is a grand sachem or a chief of chiefs in a way. And so Usamequin would come to the village after hearing the gunfire, the celebration that was going on, wondering what was going on with 90 men. And essentially, they found out nothing out of sorts was happening. You know, they had already made plenty of contact ahead of that time. And the English invited them to stay for three days. 
Now, there wasn't enough food for all 90 men that had just arrived. And so the uh, Usamequin sent out some of his men to hunt five deer. Who they and, and so they added five deer, and venison was on the menu. And the English described themselves as sending some of their hunters out to go what they say fowling. Now, 17th century English uh, use of that word would typically describe fowling as hunting water birds, so likely duck and geese. Turkey could have been there, but it's not described in detail or given the prominence that we see in uh, the modern day Thanksgiving meal. Interesting. And just quickly talk about even the term Thanksgiving and the meaning that it had for the pilgrims or the saints or the strangers. In the 17th century, interestingly enough, the idea of a feast would not have been, to the English anyway, a Thanksgiving at all. In the 17th century, the English did have a tradition of declaring days of Thanksgiving. And so that's different than a Thanksgiving holiday or a Thanksgiving feast. A day of Thanksgiving could happen any time of the year. It was usually declared by either the king or the uh, the Anglican church. And it was a way for the citizens of England to sow their covenant with God. And it would be spent as a day of solemn prayer and fasting, which is the opposite of feasting. This frivolity that was going on for three days during the feast wouldn't have even been considered back then in the 17th century to the English as a day of Thanksgiving at all. It's actually more resemblant of native celebrations of Thanksgiving feasts, which occur throughout the, the lunar year. And I say lunar year because that's the way the calendar worked. Thirteen lunar cycles uh, happen throughout the year. And certain times of the year, we have the strawberry ripening month. They would have a strawberry Thanksgiving when the corn was ripened. Then there's a green corn festival. So Thanksgiving, having a feast, in honor of the cyclical nature of the foods that become available during the year is actually more resemblant of the native traditions of the local region. So that's one of the things I try to point out is that the 19th century Thanksgiving dinner that started to emerge in America is really a harvest feast. It's really more resemblant of that native tradition than it is a 17th century English day of Thanksgiving. We will get to that, the the framing of the narrative in the 19th century But before we do, I'd love for you to talk about the Pequot Massacre, which was in 1637 and how that inspired a completely different day of Thanksgiving in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This is something that oftentimes people sometimes conflate the two histories together. So the the Mayflower Landing is 1620. The feast is in 1621. In 1636, the first war of aggression breaks out with England declaring war on the Pequot people in the Connecticut colony. And in the war, as it builds up, it culminates in 1637, in May of 1637, with a massacre, a burning of an entire Pequot village by the English and their allies. And they would end up killing 600 men, women, and children in that massacre. It was known as the Pequot Massacre. And so what ends up happening is another colony had been established by By this time, in 1637, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, after the massacre, would declare that the next year they would have a day of Thanksgiving in honor of the English victory known as to Pequots as the Pequot Massacre. So a lot of times folks do associate the creation of Thanksgiving, not necessarily with the feast, but actually with events like victories in battle, which could include a massacre. And so there's definitely different takes on it. But one of the things I would caution people to do is that, once again, the modern day Thanksgiving holiday that we have is about 
really getting together family and food and is really not tied to that English day of Thanksgiving, which would tie it to uh, the violence of the Pequot War. Which the violence, the brutality of it is remarkable. The burning of an entire village. It's the beginning of a slash and burn strategy by the English at that point, where it wasn't, they weren't targeting combatants only, they were targeting everybody. And the point of the Pequot War, when the English declared war on the Pequots, was to rid the territory of Pequots. This was in every single way, that particular war anyway, was in every single way a a full-on genocide. Right, right. It really an ethnic cleansing, a genocide. Now, when we move into the 19th century, there's this fascinating woman, Sarah Josepha Hale, who helped fund Vassar College. She was the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, which was enormously influential. Tell us about her role in this. I want to call it a melee at this point. Yes. So Sarah Josepha Hale, uh, you know, is a, a somebody from the 19th century. And she rose to prominence as the editor of Godey's Ladies Book. She would raise the readership, uh, the subscriber list, up to 150,000 plus subscribers. And in the 19th century, that's a humongous sphere of influence. This precedes Ladies Home Journal, right? So dress patterns are being sold through these magazines. All types of things are, are being sold. And year after year, she would write editorials encouraging the country to really embrace what was starting to happen, mostly in New England, but by state by state, the idea of having a Thanksgiving feast, which was typically happening in November. Some states were having them on the first no, first Thursday, some were the second, some were the third. They were kind of all over the place. Nothing was really standardized. And she really loved the tradition. And she really wanted to make it a national tradition. Now, she also did a whole lot of tying the tradition of the Thanksgiving feast with the landing of the Mayflower. And and that's not necessarily all her fault, because William Bradford's manuscript of Plymouth Plantation was lost for well over 200 years and reappeared again in the 19th century. And in 1841, a gentleman named Alexander Young, writing about Bradford's manuscript, would see the letter from Edward Winslow describing the three-day feast, that one paragraph, and in his footnote at the bottom would call it the first Thanksgiving, which is once again a 19th century feast, which is very reminiscent of the modern-day Thanksgiving feast that we have today. So she would write year after year after year about trying to create this. She would write to an influential leaders, and then eventually one of her letters gets to William Seward during the time of Abraham Lincoln's presidency, and that's when things really changed. Because of the Civil War, which wasn't the Civil War, but which wasn't known as the Civil War, right? Right. It was, at the time, yet, it wasn't called the Civil War, right? It's it's a war between the states, but the war is still raging. The North is winning. Abraham Lincoln is, of course, in charge of the Union Army. And they're looking at what do we do after the war is over? The Southern states are going to still be part of this country. How do we bring all these people together? There was a, a lot of pressure, really, on Abraham Lincoln to find a way to heal from the bloodiest war on on this landscape ever. This entire story is fascinating. And even just getting back to Hale for a moment, she did seem to have such a thing for tradition. I read elsewhere that she was responsible for popularizing the Christmas tree and the white wedding dress (laughs) in the United States. And she also wrote a little ditty called Mary Had a Lamb, which we all know as Mary Had a Little Lamb now, yes. 
And she was also a staunch feminist at the same time. It, it really, this is such an unlikely brew here. How did you conduct research for the book, Chris? There is so much in here and told in such a readable way for young people. So during my time at the Pequot Museum, we were oftentimes, because people did conflate the Pequot Massacre and the declaration by John Winthrop of a day of Thanksgiving, sometimes with the Thanksgiving holiday, we were constantly getting questioned about it. And so as a result, I created an educational classroom uh, enrichment program called Demystifying Thanksgiving as a way of talking about the holiday in a culturally competent fashion. And as I researched it, that's where I started to come find out about Sarah Josepha Hale and all of this. I was really fascinated myself by it. I really got drawn into it. And then at the museum, we also created another public event called Feast. So this event that we called Feast would happen around the Thanksgiving holiday. It would happen in November. We would have a harvest feast, and the menu would be all Indigenous-inspired. So no pork, beef, or chicken on the menu, because cows, uh, pigs, and chickens don't arrive here until Europeans bring them. So it's fish, it's duck, venison on the menu, corn, beans, squash. Our chef was Sherry Hocknett, who was Wampanoag. And so with that event, I would often do educational presentations and I would change the material year after year after year. So I've been really working in and out of this material for years and really kind of honing it with Wampanoag people, especially to make sure that I'm telling it correctly. You're the perfect person to write this book. It's great to have a Native American lens on it. I wonder, what did you learn about Thanksgiving when you were growing up? I learned basically the same narrative that has been taught to many generations since the 19th century. There was no different research. I went to school uh, in Badotnigook, a Passamaquoddy school. We had a, a strong sense that the Thanksgiving holiday didn't found our homeland, which we've been existing in for over 12,000 years. So we, we didn't necessarily put the two together, although the first Thanksgiving narrative was taught to us at a very, very young age, very much the same innocent way as taught to all kindergartners and first graders without the extra context. I didn't learn about the great dying until I was an adult. Even in my own school in, in, uh, in Indian Township, we still were not afforded these pieces of history. And I actually felt kind of a little slighted by that because these things happen to Native people. And it's part of the story of how we got to where we are today. And as human beings, we all exist in this space together now. And what we can do as human beings existing in this space together is look backward, see where we as human beings made mistakes. And I think we can say really clear that, you know, genocidal warfare is one of the, an example of a mistake that we as human beings shouldn't continue with each other. So let's admit that this was wrong. And then from there, we can start to do better together to build a better future for ourselves collectively, not just for Native people, but for all of us to see each other equally. Well said. Katie, tell us about your editorial role at Scholastic and on the What If series in particular. As Chris mentioned, this series was originally published by Scholastic between the 70s and the 90s. It has been revised before, and there are several books in this series. But as we were taking a look at it, you know, in I believe it was 2019, you know, our understanding was that a lot of the books were very outdated. And one of the big things that we noticed is that they 
presuppose a white audience reading the books? Because the idea is, what if you lived? It's question and answers. And if the answers only apply to your white students, then obviously you're excluding a big population of students and and history and how things affected historical peoples who were non-white. So as we were revamping, one of our big points that we wanted to be very firm on is we wanted to relaunch this series with BIPOC creators, with very genuine connections to the subject matter. And one of the things I was really excited about was relaunching with Plymouth Thanksgiving, which we did not have a Thanksgiving book in the original series. We had a Mayflower book and we had several books that talked about various indigenous tribes, but we did not have a specific Thanksgiving book. One of the things that I think we can all agree is that, as Chris mentioned, the narrative that's been taught to students over the last several hundred years is not the one that is accurate. And so it's really exciting to kind of offer something that's not really out there for kids right now, a resource that kids and parents and teachers can use to have a frank and honest discussion about Thanksgiving. It's so helpful and done with such care for young readers. Talk a little bit about the illustrations by Winona Nelson and how she approached them. Winona's illustrations are just so gorgeous. We feel so lucky that she was excited to work on the book. Essentially, we went to her with a layout already done. So she had a good idea of where we needed illustrations. And we kind of outlined very loosely what we were looking for in each space. But we gave her a lot of freedom to explore because she is also an Indigenous woman and she does her own research and she has her own connection to the story and to her history. And one of the things that I thought was really lovely is that in the Thanksgiving scene toward the end of the book, she actually painted an image of her father into the modern Thanksgiving scene, which I thought was just such a lovely tribute. And I I mean, I think she did just such an amazing job. This is her first picture book and we're excited to have her signed up for more. So I I think she's really just such an amazing talent and has really beautifully interpreted Chris's words. This book is just incredible in every way. So helpful and interesting and beautiful. Chris, you mentioned an important takeaway for this book. I wondered if there's anything else either of you would like to add about what you hope young readers will learn from this book. Yeah, I mean, in some of the reviews, they they really kind of nailed some of the, the goals that I was looking to. And then one of them was to make sure to put Wampanoag people back into the present. Because we hear about the Mayflower story and oftentimes only talk about them in the past. That creates some implicit biases some unconscious biases that we have. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, one of the things I noticed when I moved to that territory is the erasure of Native peoples is so complete that when I worked at the Pequot Museum, it was not uncommon for a guest, a child, even their parent, to ask if the Pequots were actually alive. In the Pequot Museum, their own tribal museum, with a Pequot educator leading the tour, they're just literally not putting two and two together. So it lets us know that our public education system and the media that we're creating is doing a really messy job of putting Native people back into the present. So that's one of the things that I wanted to make sure happened, is that not only do we talk about the history but we talk about the survivance and the resistance and the beauty of the culture of the Wampanoag people that we have today. One of the things I'm really excited about for this book and one of the things that it did for me is that I think it helps to start reframing how we view history. I think creating this wider view, I think what Chris has done so beautifully is 
as you mentioned, you know, start from before the Mayflower and really explore what was already going on in the territory that we now call the United States before the saints and the pilgrims arrived. And it really starts to reframe the way that we're taught at a very young age to think about America and to think about the birth of a country. And I think it's a really important reframing. And I think it starts the conversation by starting with something like Thanksgiving, which is a holiday that everyone is very familiar with and starting to reframe that narrative. Absolutely. The book is designed for seven to 10 year olds, but I hope readers of all ages will pick it up. I know I learned so much. Thank you both very much for joining me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Chris Newell and Katie Height for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Chris's new book, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.